Hi guys, welcome back to What's the Crime? Today's episode uh, deals with a story that is quite famous in America and um, unfortunately it does uh, deal with violence against a child so it may not be suitable for all listeners. So on the 4th of December 1972 in Merced, which was a small farming town in California, the day was cold and grey and seven-year-old Stephen Stainer started to walk home from school as he normally did. So Merced was like a small, close-knit community, so his parents didn't really worry about his short walk home from school. His mother, Kay, was at the store picking up some stuff from an auto parts shop for her husband, Dell. so he was a mechanic. But when a cold rain started to pour, she rushed to Stephen's school in the hope that he would know that she was coming to pick him up so that, you know, he wouldn't walk home, get soaked and get a cold. So she arrived at the school at around 2.10. So their school actually finished at 2 o'clock. So she sort of searches around um, a few clusters of children before realising that he's already left. So she drove home searching for Stephen along the way. When she arrived home, at about 2.20, she found her husband, Dell working away on his Jeep. So she asked him if he had seen Stephen or if Stephen had come home yet, and he says no. Now, they weren't really too concerned um, at the time. Like I said, it was quite a safe community, and they thought yeah. maybe he'd gone to his friend's house or something. And also, this is 1972. Like, nowadays, people are like, what? He was seven years old? But yeah, like, in the context of the, t- the t- of the time. Context. Context of the time. I know, like, it wasn't a big deal for, like, a seven-year-old to be walking home. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like nowadays, like you said, that would just be completely yeah. unheard of. Yeah. So a little before 3 p.m., Del Kay and their son Corey, who was too young yet to go to school, piled into the car to go and pick up their other two children, Cindy and Jody. So they finished at three o'clock an hour after Stephen and they looked for Stephen along the way. So Del and Kay had five children, Carrie, who was the oldest, Cindy, Stephen, Jody and Corey, who was youngest. So Stephen was a middle child. And when they got there, Cindy and Jody were waiting on the curb, but Stephen was nowhere to be seen. So his sisters said that they hadn't actually seen him since lunchtime. So as they drove home, you know, they were more sort of angry at Stephen for not coming home on time and not telling them where he was. But also underneath that, they were slightly anxious just in case something actually had happened. Yeah. So they sort of scour around the neighborhood. They call some of Stephen's friends and Stephen's friends' parents, but nobody knew where he was. So after sort of running around the neighborhood a few times, their concern obviously heightened. So a little before five o'clock, they contacted Merced police. 15 minutes later, an officer called Michael Hyde arrived. So at this point, they are concerned because he wouldn't normally have stayed away that long without telling anyone where he was. So Stephen was approximately four feet, eight inches tall, 60 pounds with brown hair, brown eyes and was last seen wearing a light tan coat with blue jeans and cowboy boots. So at first, the officer, you know, wasn't overly concerned either because foul play in Merced was almost unheard of. But as dark fell, backup officers arrived on the scene to retrace Stephen's steps. 
At 6pm, reserve police officers and local Boy Scouts were called out to help search the area, but dark and cold wet weather had driven all the children inside and Stephen was still nowhere to be seen. So local radio stations start broadcasting about um, the missing child, his disappearance and also his description. And about midnight on that night, the police call Dell down to the station and they outrightly ask him if he had killed Stephen. So, yeah, he's like gobsmacked and he's angry he answers no forcefully he agrees to take a polygraph but they didn't have the equipment available because it's a little small police station so they have to wait a few days and that night Dell and Kay sat up the whole night wondering what had happened to their beloved Stevie you can just imagine the worry well you can't imagine the worry no you can't but I mean you know when I said that they asked him most of the time in missing children um it's someone that the child knows. Yeah. So they're sort of trying to rule out their options. Yeah. The next day, on the 5th of December, virtually all off-duty law enforcement personnel in Merced took part in a countywide search. Everyone within a 10-mile block was interviewed. News bulletins on Stephen's disappearance were broadcasted on all local radio and TV stations. Search and rescue drudged through nearby creeks, and later that day, the polygraph machine arrived, and both Dell and Kay took the test and passed. In the days that followed, temperatures dropped below freezing and the police were worried that if Stephen was still alive and if he was somewhere out there that he could die by exposure. By the end of the first week that Stephen was missing, police now obviously took into question foul play abduction and they requested a list of all sex offenders in Merced and the surrounding counties. Next, they contacted the chief park ranger in charge of law enforcement in Yosemite National Park to obtain a list of all their employees. So Merced, uh, in in sort of context of where it was based, it was referred to like the gateway to the famous Yosemite National Park. So it was obviously a really beautiful town and that's sort of how you could get into Yosemite. So the police asked for a list of the employees um, from the um, Yosemite National Park because they knew that the park hired a high number of convicts. Um, And they did get a list, um, but judging from that list, 40% had a record of felony arrests and some of those being sex offences. I actually never knew that. I've never... like that's so strange. Isn't that so scary? And you know there's actually so many people go missing in Yosemite. I know. I know. It's a very high rate of people and people that are, have just never been found. Yeah, I know. So um now when they did get that this list, what they didn't know at the time was that they only received a list of half of the employees. Why? So the company actually paid its employees on alternate weeks. So it employ it, it paid half on one week and half on alternate weeks. So they went through the payroll. So they went through the payroll and only gave the police the list of the employees that were paid that week. Right. So they also asked the park rangers to uh, do a search, um, you know, in Yosemite, um, but... Well, Yosemite is like... Yes, but I, when I say, sorry, I don't mean the actual park, I mean sort of the... Um, where everybody worked, um, okay. the cabins, that sort of thing, because there was a lot of, like, tourism, you know, places to stay around yeah. there. Yeah. So they didn't come up with anything anyway. The search was officially called off one week later on Monday the 11th of December, and Stephen's family were obviously absolutely devastated. So Dell, who was Stephen's father in particular, took it very hard. He told reporters that Kay was holding up better than he was. Um, and they tried their best to live like a somewhat normal existence, 
but hoping that Stephen would come home and that he was safe. So Kay sort of instructed her four remaining children not to accept sweets, car rides from strangers, and she sort of continued to cook clean, care for her children, try and get on with life. I know, but Dell, however, completely fell apart. He claims that he sort of just wasn't the same person without Stephen. They were very close. Well, like, a, a week's also very short, very, right, to call off a very search for short. a missing seven-year-old boy. Yeah, so they're still. it's not that they're actively not searching for him anymore, it's that they're not... The ground search, yes, say. exactly. Okay. So three weeks went by, and a very sad and depressing Christmas came and went with Stephen's presence staying oh under the God, tree. absolutely heartbreaking. I know. So they believed that he was kidnapped um, or accepted a ride with a tourist of Yosemite National Park. In late December, a local newspaper offered a $1,000 award for any information on Stephen's disappearance, as they still had not uncovered any evidence to support that he even had been kidnapped or what actually happened. The new year came and went, and when Dell and Kay tried to contact local news stations in an attempt to keep Stephen's story in the press, they were told it wasn't interesting enough and that it was old news. Oh, what? I know. How horrible that is, is that? That is just, that's brutal. I know. In May, they made an announcement that a $5,000 award was on offer for information on Stephen's disappearance. It was raised by the community, but again, to no avail. Kay and Dell, however, never ever lost hope that Stephen would come back to them. As Christmas of 1973 approached, Kay spoke to a reporter in the Mercury um, of the Mercury in San Jose. The only unique thing about Stephen is that he got along with everyone. His friends included older children as well as younger ones. He loved babies and dogs and kitty cats. She concluded that, I know that there is a 50% chance that Stephen is dead and that at any day they will come and say, well, we found him. But at least you would know. I pray that if he is dead, let us know, because this not knowing is enough to drive you insane. Oh like, that you, no matter what, you would never, ever stop wondering what of happened. Well, it would be absolute torture. On February 14th, 1980, Valentine's Day, over seven years after Stephen's disappearance, Angela White dropped her youngest son, Timmy, off at school. Timmy was five years old. He had one older sister, Nicole, who was six. Angela and her partner, Jim, lived seven miles south of Ukiah. So Ukiah is located north of San Francisco yeah. in California. So it's about a four-hour drive from Merced, judging by Google Maps for what I could. Mm-hmm. So they enrolled Timmy in a small private daycare centre run by a lady called Diane Crawford in her home, which was just a few blocks from the school that Timmy attended for his half-day kin- kindergarten class. So Diane normally stood on her front porch and watched for Timmy when he was due home from school. She had other little kids that she watched as well and they would all wait for him together. But when he didn't show up on time, Diane decided she would call and speak with Angela, who was Timmy's mum, when she was at work. So she called her at 11.50am and informed her that Timmy had still not arrived home from school. So Angela wasn't really too concerned at this point. She kind of thought in her head, it's Valentine's Day, maybe they had a little party at school and he stayed a little bit later. See this, right, like reading this now in this moment in time yeah like, oh my god that's crazy because he's, he's five he's five yeah but i know times were different back then yeah so she did however then become concerned when she did realize the time because um timmy got out at eleven thirty, 
And she sort of didn't really, really tick into her head that when Diane called that it was 10 to 12, she sort of thought, oh, he's getting out of 12. He's not home yet. It's oh, early right, enough. Okay. So she then actually does get quite concerned. And her and her husband, Jim, travel to Timmy's school. They speak to the principal who informed them that their class had gotten out on time. So she decided to call the police because unlike Stephen, Timmy was not an adventurous little boy. He would never have gone to a friend's house or anything. He always walked straight back to Diane's house. They informed the police and then they started to drive around town in their car to find Timmy. At 4pm, a policeman asked them to go down to the station to file a report on Timmy's disappearance. On Saturday the 16th of February, which is two days after Timmy's disappearance, tracking dogs were brought up from Sacramento to search the area. So like around Diane's home, around the elementary school and around the neighbourhood. But they couldn't pick up a scent as it had rained for three days previous. So Timmy's parents put up missing, missing posters with her child's face all over town and the townspeople got together to raise a $15,000 reward for Timmy's return. In the following days and weeks, the creeks and rivers were searched, but nothing was ever found. And like Stephen's case, there was no evidence as to what had happened, as if Timmy had just disappeared. Oh my goodness. It's just so scary, isn't it? It's so scary. It's like any parent's worst nightmare. It's like your worst nightmare. Then on March 1st, 1980... So how long is this after? Two weeks. Two weeks later, okay. Officer Bob Warner had just begun the graveyard shift in Ukiah Police Department, so it was shortly after 11pm and he was getting ready to leave when he noticed a small boy come up to the front door, push the door open and then look back out to the street before turning and running back out. So he's sort of like, okay, this is a little boy, it's quite late, what is he doing? So um, he is quite curious, he goes to the front door, he looks out and he sees a little boy running across the parking lot to an older boy. So he radios another unit um, to a patrol car that was passing by to stop and question the boys. They're kind of a little bit worried. He doesn't want to run out in case he scares them and they run off. So the officer, Van Herhis, who is in the um, patrol car, he stops and he asks the little boy his name, to which he replies, Timmy White. So the officer is shocked because... Timmy White is a little boy that's gone missing that everybody had been looking for. Mm-hmm. This little boy had brown hair and Timmy had bright blonde. So the police officer then asks the older boy who he is with, um, who he is, to which he replies, my name is Stephen and I'm pretty sure my surname is Stainer and I have been missing in Merced for the last seven years. Oh my God. So the officers don't even really know who Stephen is. You know, that that doesn't really ring a bell with them because it had been so long before, whereas Timmy's case was still very much high in the news. Stephen informed officers that Timmy had been kidnapped by the same man that had been holding him captive for the last seven years. He brought Timmy home because he didn't want Timmy to go through what he had went through. Oh my God. So... At first, Stephen doesn't want to provide any information about this man. He actually calls him dad. Oh. And he said that he had kidnapped the boys. But he eventually informs them that the man's name was Kenneth Parnell. And he actually worked at the Palace Motel, which was less than a mile from the police station. Oh, my God. That night, Angela and Jim were at home when the phone rang. An officer told them that he was calling from the Ukiah Police Department that they had a little boy who says his name is Timmy White and looks like your son. So Jim 
being the logical one, hangs up, calls his police station back and asks, did someone just call here and say that they had found Timmy? When they replied that they had, they are like, get straight up dressed, um, grab their daughter, Nicole, wrap her up in a blanket, put her in the car and race down to the police station. Sorry, how quick of the dad? I would never think of that. No, I know. And I assume it's because, you know... They might have got hoax calls. Exactly. So they um, are terrified about what's waiting for them. Can you imagine the fear of, is it him? Is it not him? Where has he been? What's happened? Exactly. So they jump out of the car, run into the station. Angela runs to the room where another officer was standing, sees a little boy with dark hair, said, that's not Timmy, and faints on the floor. She manages to then get herself up with the help of an officer, goes over to the little boy and looks closer. It was him. She knew it was Timmy, but somebody had dyed his hair dark brown. Oh, cheekers. So she holds him in her arms for 20 minutes without even speaking. Like, you can imagine that moment. I know. Oh my goodness, that's so sad. The relief. I know. At around 3am that morning, a police sergeant in Merced calls the Stainer home to tell them he had some news about their son and would be at their door shortly. So Kel and Day, or sorry, Del and Kay are thinking... Okay, Kerry, their oldest son, is off on a camping trip to Yosemite National Park with his friends. So they're thinking, oh my God, has something happened to Kerry? Because of course they're not going to think. Oh, so he didn't say about your son, Stephen. He just said, I have news about, about your, your son. son. And he said, I'll be at your door. Because he doesn't want to, he wants to be there to tell them. Oh my God, right, okay. So he arrives at their door and tells them that their long lost son, Stephen, had apparently been found alive and well in Ukiah. They are shocked. Like they can't speak. Dell falls to the ground and starts to oh, cry. I am at, this is so sad. It's so sad. He then, the police officer then returns to the police station where they then receive news of the confirmation of Stephen's identification from the mayor's um, office. So he's, he's confirmed now that this boy is definitely Stephen. Okay. So they're like stunned. He's alive. They just can't believe it. It's seven years later. Like, yep. you know. Just before four that morning, Ukiah police detective John Williams asked Stephen to give him a statement in his own words. It began, my name is Stephen Stainer. I am 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen and I'm pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. He then goes on to tell the police a man called Kenneth Eugene Parnell had been his father for seven years. I call him dad. He had never molested me sexually. He had never been mean to me and he never said why he stole me. He has been like a father to me and has always sent me to school. But what school? Surely they'd know. Like, who's this boy? Remember the times. Okay. So I'll go on to that. few schools. So the first question, did he ever abuse you, comes to light, to which Stephen replies, oh no, he was good to me. He kind of spoiled me. But he does assure officers that after all this time, he did remember his family and often thought about his parents and his brothers and sisters back home. Before Timmy's parents left the station um, with him, Angela, Timmy's mother, went to the room where Stephen was being held, kissed him on the cheek and told him, thank you for bringing my son home safe. Then he was taken off to the local hospital to have Timmy examined by a doctor for signs of physical or sexual abuse. And Jim and Angela were thankful to learn that there were none. Thank God. Thank God. On discussing Timmy at a conference, Stephen spoke in a shy voice and said, I knew what Purnell was doing was wrong and I wanted to give him a whole life with his parents. 
Like, thank God that he took him home. I know, he saved him. He saved him. The following day, Stephen made the journey home back to Merced with police officers. When they exited onto the parkway, they asked Stephen if he recognized anything, and slowly everything began to come back to him. Dell and Kay were taken aside and counseled. They had to remember that in their minds, even though he was a seven-year-old child coming home to them, Stephen was now almost a grown man and had been living a somewhat independent life, and they needed to acknowledge and recognize that. They had a big welcome home, and um, a little after 7 p.m., on the evening of March 2nd, 1980, Stephen emerged from the cruiser's back seat and stood motionless, staring in bewilderment at the crowd and his approaching family 2,645 days after that cold, drizzly December day in 1972 when, as a seven-year-old child, he had his last day at home with his family. Everybody was overjoyed. Stephen was quite shy, but there were tears of joy on everyone's part. His older brother Kerry had learned of his brother's return from a newscast on the radio as he drove his buddies back to Merced from a weekend camping trip at Yosemite National Park. So he hears this. He almost drives off the road because he's like, what? Like after all this time, they can't wait to get home. He said... So he hears it on the radio. Yes. His family are obviously like... Couldn't even, they, they just want to find out if it's him or not. They don't even, they just sure they couldn't, couldn't have called it. him anyway because there's no like phones in there, no mobile phones. So he said that night he went outside and walked several blocks away, looked up at the stars, and started to wish on one that Stephen would come home like he often did. But then he remembered that Stephen was home and so he thanked the star instead. This is so, I know like, it's, it's, it's it is a very emotional story. Even though Stephen had continued to characterize his relationship with. Kenneth Parnell as a very normal one officers suspected Parnell had sexually abused Stephen because within hours of his arrest Ukiah Police Department teletyped and received his complete criminal history including details of an arrest and conviction in 1951 for kidnapping and sexually assaulting a nine-year-old boy in Bakersfield. See this is my thing why are these people released again? Do you know, like, yeah. I think that's the worst, like, that's the thing. worst type of thing yeah. ever. Yeah. So in March 1951, Kenneth Parnell, so he was in his late teens at this point. He was like 19, I think. Okay. He approached three young boys playing and he flashed a fake deputy sheriff's badge that he had bought and talked one of the little boys, a nine-year-old boy, Bobby Green, into accompanying him where he drove him to a remote area and sexually assaulted him. I know, um... And then um, in March 1951, on the 26th of March, he was arrested and he was found guilty. So so this boy obviously escaped, Bobby. Yes. He actually, after he committed the sexual assault, he actually dropped the boy back. Right. So to tell you Stephen's story from what actually happened on the morning of the 4th of December 1972. On that morning, Irvin Edward Murphy and 41-year-old Kenneth Eugene Parnell drove to Merced in Parnell's old white Buick, which was the car they were driving. Parnell and Murph, who was Edward Murphy, which was his nickname, were friends from work. They both worked for Curry Company in Yosemite National Park, which, like I said earlier, was renowned for hiring ex-cons. Murph was just delighted to have a friend. He was considered a bit of a slow learner and easily manipulated by his co-workers. So reading about Murph, um, I feel like maybe in today's society, he could have been diagnosed with a learning disability. Right. Um, but in those days, um, he just sort of had to get by on his own. 
So Parnell informed Murph that he longed for a child. He told him he wanted to take an underprivileged or abused child off the street and raise him as his own. So for anyone else, you'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Like, yeah. you know, but Murph thought this was a great thing to do. He had confided in Parnell that he had been abused as a child and this seemed like a good thing to do for his friend and for the child. So, you know, the fact that he was abused when he was younger wasn't lost on Parnell. Yeah. At 2pm that day, they drove around and his um, Murph had a handful of gospel leaflets. They were giving them out to children walking home from school. When seven-year-old Stephen is approached by Murph, he asked if his mum would be interested in giving a donation to the church. When Stephen replies that he thinks she would, he insisted on giving him a lift home. Stephen's first impression of Murph was that he was a nice man, even though he later found out, quote, he wasn't too bright, unquote. But that obviously was not important to Stephen at the time. He's a seven-year-old child. When Parnell pulls up in a white car, Stephen gets in. And when they drive up past Stephen's street, Parnell tells them that they're going to his place for a while. And he's allowed to stay the night and they're going to call his mother from there. Parnell drove them to where he was living at the time, Cathy's Valley, which was an area of Yosemite National Park. So Parnell rented a little small red cabin there. And unbeknownst to Stephen, his maternal grandfather actually lived in Cathy's Valley at this time and was only 200 feet away. Oh, no. In the cabin, Kenneth Purnell had dozens of small children's toys and Stephen eagerly picked out toys for himself and also asked could he take some toys home to his brothers and sisters. This angered Purnell, who told him that the toys were for himself only. Stephen was too young to not realise the sinister implication of this. This is actually so hard to listen to I know so Kenneth and his accomplice Murph were both employees of the Curry Company in Yosemite National Park so remember I said the detectives requested a list of all current employees and they only received a list of half the people Parnell's name was not available on that list however it was on the other list had they actually give them a proper list of everybody's name and they would have been able to check against the FBI's list of convicted sex offenders and child molesters where his name did appear. So the FBI agents have been very outspoken about their failures, um, about the, sorry, about their feelings about these failures. Stephen was seven years old and was living with a park employee who the rangers were asked to search. Uh, and how did they not find him? They didn't find him. Uh, obviously, it wasn't an, an, you know, an accurate search. Yeah. So during the day when when Parnell would go to work, he would drug Stephen with sleeping pills. He gifted Stephen a puppy in mid-December. Stephen loved dogs and was overjoyed and immediately named his new pet Queenie. And he was grateful to his captor. Parnell used Queenie to soften the blow of informing Stephen that day that he had actually went to court where a judge had given him custody of Stephen. This man is so twisted. He told Stephen that his parents didn't want him anymore because they couldn't afford to take care of him and that now he was Parnell's son and his name was Dennis Gregory Parnell. And from now on, he was to call Kenneth Parnell his dad. Stephen was shocked. And with tears in his eyes, he insisted that his mum, his dad and his brothers and sisters needed him at home. Kenneth corrected him and said... They don't need you now. Stephen was distraught, but also as a naive seven-year-old child, he believed he had no choice but to get on with his new life as Dennis. That night, he dyed Stephen's hair, and although he started to get to grips with his new life, Stephen never, ever forgot about his family back in Merced. Okay, so the sexual abuse started on the first night that Stephen was kidnapped. 
So Parnell made Stephen sleep next to him in the bed naked and then the abuse escalated eventually leading to Parnell raping Stephen on an almost daily basis. So although he never abused Stephen when Murph was there, Murph did later claim to have no idea about the sexual abuse. So later when questioned, Stephen actually very fondly remembers Murph. He said he was always nice to him, he brought him comic books, and he was never interested in him sexually. So Murph was just, Murph, had no clue what was going on. He thought that this was a good thing that they were doing. He, I, I think he sort of, you know, I think he's he was quite easily led. Yeah, he seems childlike yes, himself. Um, but I think that he, he sort of knew that they shouldn't have done it, yeah. but... Um, he also thought they were kind of doing a good thing. Yeah. However, sort of later down the line, I think he, he realises and feels guilty. On December 17th, Kenneth Purnell had decided to leave Merced, so he obviously doesn't want to take any unnecessary risks with Stephen. He quit his job and they drove 200 miles to the Californian city of Santa Rosa. So they moved um, sort of around motel, motel for a while. They stayed in Santa Rosa for a little while and Purnell instructed Dennis at this point to never ever say anything to anybody about being taken from Merced or about any of the sexual abuse threatening Stephen with a spanking or being locked up in a children's home saying he should never tell anyone their secrets. In January 1973 he registered his son in the second grade at Steel Lane Elementary School under the name Dennis Gregory Parnell. So he's like actually using Stephen's real middle name. His name is actually Stephen um, Gregory Steiner. And he also uses his real date of birth, which he's seen this on a missing children's flyer. Um, so he's kind of like just cockily using it. Um, he is like, this is... Yeah. It's, it's This is one of the worst things I've ever heard. He stated that Stephen's former school was Yosemite Elementary School, which was a real school, but one that Stephen nor Dennis ever attended. The same month, the school district office received a letter, so it was an enclosed bulletin to all primary schools in the district about Stephen's disappearance with a photo of him on it. The bulletin never reached that elementary school. It was actually dumped by oh, the administrators. What's going on? At the Bellevue Union District, it was located. So it wasn't until years later that Dell and Kay actually learned that the letters that the sorry, the letters and the bulletins that they had so hopefully sent out were thrown in the trash. Like how just There's so many like wrongdoings. Little missteps yeah. here and there that, yeah, that you that know they, they could they have been found so much thinner. And nobody, you know, really thought anything strange about the father and son duo. They, they seemed quite normal. Um, Ken got a job at the front desk at the Santa Rosa Holiday Inn and he used a local babysitting agency to babysit. This is just crazy. I know. Like he's not even hiding him. Um, now, Stephen only recalls of one night where he actively tried to run away. The then eight-year-old left in the middle of the night when Pernell was asleep. He was upset after a particularly brutal sexual assault. However, he became lost and panicked after a few blocks. Sobbing and shaking with fear, he finally found his way back before his dad awoke. Dad in commas. Yeah. This was his last attempt to return to his own family for many, many years he to was come. Only eight. He was only eight. It's so, so hard to think of. In February, they then moved into a trailer um, at the Mount Taylor Trailer Park in Santa Rosa and Dennis changed schools to accommodate this move. So 
Dennis or Stephen was quickly becoming accustomed to his new school. He liked his teacher. He was liked by his classmates. And he, had, he got his first best friend, Kenny Matthias. So soon Stephen headed for the Matthias home every day after school. Kenneth Purnell asked Barbara, who was Kenny's mother, if she would keep him after school and feed him dinners and he would pay her for it. This is the, like, this it's is just so like he's, he's not hiding he's, him. He's it's there in so broad daylight. Open, yes. So by the end of 1973, in early November, Purnell rented a house in St. Rosa with a big backyard so their dog Queenie would have room to play around. So this was oh, a he's wonderful so thoughtful, place. Isn't he? <laughs> this was a wonderful place for Stephen and Queenie and they really liked it here. Um, there were seven rooms which afforded Stephen more privacy than he ever had. And although Stephen liked this place, it did mean that he would have to move schools again, this time to a different elementary school, leaving behind his best friend, Kenny. But Stephen got a surprise when right after the move, Purnell allowed Stephen his first overnight guest, Kenny. At the time, Stephen didn't know, but Purnell was actually developing a relationship with Barbara, who was Kenny's mother, Stephen's friend. Right. But that was not the only reason he invited Kenny over. He also had interests in Kenny too. This story is just getting worse and worse. Uh, it's hard to listen to. In February 1974, Purnell quit his job at the Holiday Inn. So he was like a lifelong chain smoker and new laws came in that meant he couldn't smoke at the desk. So he quit. Him and Stephen moved back sort of into Santa Rosa um, where they went again from motel to motel. But this meant that Stephen could go back into his old school in fourth grade, which meant he was reunited with his best friend, Kenny. So soon after, um, Purnell started openly dating Kenny's, Kenny's mother, Barbara Mathias. So Barbara's husband, Bob, was an excess drinker. And I think he used to come home um, and he would actually, you know, be abusive toward Barbara, like he would hit her. So she left her husband, Bob, and moved into the motel with Dennis and Purnell. Okay, so Barbara didn't have good taste in men. You can say that much. Yes, clearly. Um, Barbara gets worse. So... One night, um, well, Stephen sort of says, first of all, that they all just sort of slept together in, in the bed or whatever. And then one night, they forced Stephen to have sex with Barbara. What? Yes. So, like, I actually felt sorry for Barbara. And now I hate her. I hate her passionately. Um, so how old was Stephen at this time? Nine. I'm actually, I'm going to be sick. Uh, so, I mean, like... I. This, I really was just like this, uh, it was so bad from the start and it just got worse. It, like, I didn't think it could get worse. So years later, Stephen actually spoke about his embarrassment. He said, quote, I was their best friend and we were like brothers and sisters and she was their mother. It wasn't right. Uh, not to mention the fact she's a grown woman and he's nine. It's disgusting. In June of that year, Parnell, Stephen and Barbara moved into North Star Trailer Park. And what about her son, Kenny? So Kenny and Kenny's other siblings stayed with their father, Bob. And from that point on, uh, Parnell, Barbara and Stephen introduced themselves and a family, man, wife and son. As a family? Yes. During the 18 months that they lived together, there was approximately eight additional times that they involved Stephen in their sex life. Stephen said that Barbara met almost all of Parnell's sexual needs and he never had sex with Stephen whilst she was there. 
Stephen did not like Barbara at all. I shock. Yes. However, he did tolerate her because it meant that Kenneth didn't abuse him quite so much. This is so, so hard to listen to. Like, how do you find some? How do you find someone like that? Do you know what I mean? How do? You, how can you just find someone? How are there people? Yeah, like I that? mean, like, it's it's so sickening. In December 1974, Parnell actually tries to convince Stephen to help him kidnap another young boy to join their family. They went to a shopping mall in Santa Rosa and made Stephen have conversations with any young boys that were on their own and asked them to leave with them. Parnell knew it would look questionable if he were to, you know, go and talk to young boys himself. However, if it was Stephen and he was close in age, it wouldn't look sort of as weird. So Stephen deliberately ruined the plan, pretending to ask the boys to come with him and then he would go back to Parnell and say that the child didn't want to come with him. But in reality, he just sort of yeah, would make... Yeah, because he's a good person. Yeah, he just kind of made a little bit of conversation and then would go and say, oh, look, they didn't want to come. In 1975... After their botched kidnapping attempt, they moved to Willitus, which was a remote area in California's uh, Mendocino County. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Willitus. Um, so Parnell wasn't able to get work there and they moved to a rundown um, trailer park in the coastal town of Fort Bragg in Mendocino County. Parnell used his mother's his mother's money to open a Bible shop, which was a financial burden. A Bible shop yeah. of all things. I know, it's actually ironic. So he he actually later told um, the author of a book. This is actually the book that I read to get pretty much all of this information. It's a book written by Mike Eccles, and it's called um, I Know My First Name is Stephen, um, which I read it, and he told the author later that he had studied in the Bible and had taken extensive courses that held a minister's license and a doctorate. Um, however, like he never found any evidence, sorry, any evidence that he had ever received any license or any degree. So he's just like so uh, weird. Like, just, uh, just a liar. So 10 year old Stephen enrolled in the fifth grade in his new school. He was free to roam around town on his own. At one point he was caught shoplifting and was escorted home by the police. Oh my goodness. So he was with one of his little friends um, and his friend sort of dared him to like steal some silly putty, put it in his pocket, but the, the manager sort of caught them. It didn't even occur to him to tell the police who he was. Stephen said he was more focused on the fact he was going to be in so much trouble with Parnell, which he was. Parnell was furious. He gave him a lecture and listen to this. He took out a piece of paper, drew a black line and said, you see this line, it represents all the people who have committed a crime. The empty space on either side is people who have not. You have been added to the black line. Oh, this man is, is I actually have I no words for him. I know. In spring of 1976, Barbara's divorce from Bob came through. And she got custody of her four youngest children, no. Lloyd, Kenny, Valerie and Christy. So they all moved back in with Barbara and Ken and Stephen. And they moved into an old converted school bus. It was during this time that Kenny was first propositioned by Parnell. One day, Stephen and Kenny were sitting out in the dock when out of the blue, Kenny said, you know your dad's a blank. Uh, homophobic term. Stephen was unnerved, embarrassed, denied any knowledge of such, you know, knowing anything about his father's sexuality. 
Um, but Kenny went on to tell Stephen that Parnell had tried to get him to engage in sexual acts. So the author of that book that I was telling you about actually interviewed Kenny in 1984, which was years later. And, you know, he said that Parnell had only tried to molest him. However, in October of 1984, um, he actually said that Parnell had sex with him on several occasions. And in 1980, Barbara reported the same. What? <sighs> Like, this man ruins so many people's lives. The bar- the Bible shop, like, shock, went out of business. And in June, Barbara left Parnell for another man and thankfully, finally, took all her children with her. Stephen actually recalls how difficult this was for him. Although he hated Barbara and hated living with her, it now meant that Parnell's attention was all focused back on him. In July... Parnell and Stephen moved to a small mobile home in the small rural town of Comche. He enrolled into a new uh, Mendocino middle school and he joined the football team. So he actually really liked living here. It was a very outdoorsy lifestyle. He had his own room and lots of space. He began using cannabis and drinking regularly. It was here where um, Stephen met his first girlfriend, Lori, which was a daughter of their neighbour. In this Mendocino middle school in seventh grade, as a 13-year-old, Stephen and his friend Damon were in class. One of their teachers, Gerald Butler, actually told, um, sort of was telling the class about an article they were reading about lost and missing children. When the bell went, everybody went outside, but Damon went up to teacher and said, you know that Dennis, who they called him that at the time, Dennis claims he was taken away when he was really young and his parents said they didn't want him anymore. Both Damon and Stephen later insisted this incident never happened. However, amongst his peers, the teacher, Gerald uh, Butler, had a reputation as an honest teacher with a sharp memory. And at least one other teacher actually recalled him talking about this incident in the teacher's lounge on that day years ago. So he said that he thought about it a lot, Mm. but he just didn't really do anything about it. Okay. He just thought maybe it's just a story. So... Parnell invited one of Stephen's friends from school, George, around for an overnight stay. Stop inviting people around for overnight stays. I know. So he let the boys drink beers and afterwards it is reported that he raped George. George's parents reported it to the local police. And what happened? Years later... Stephen sort of admitted that he knew these things would happen when he had friends over. But how did the police not investigate this? Can you let me finish my sentence? Right, go. (laughs) (laughs) So George's parents reported it to the local police. And years later, when Dennis, Dennis admitted that he sort of knew, you know, what was going to happen when he had friends over. But he always kept quiet because he just figured, quote, if he was blanking them, then he wouldn't be blanking me. So... He sort of has, like, the self-preservation. Yeah, but how did the police not... Like, did they look into this rape that was reported? Yes, and a lot of people were aware of Kenneth Purnell's habits with young boys, friends of um, Stevens, well, Dennis, who they knew him as, but people just sort of kept to themselves. And and why didn't the police do anything if it was Nothing was ever really... Nothing ever really came of it. 
In the late spring of 1978, when he was 13, Dennis went to a party with a group of teenagers where he drank beer, smoked marijuana. He started to cry, stating that, I want to go home, but nobody ever really understood what he meant. They just thought he was sort of, you know, high on marijuana and just didn't really know what he was talking about. So Stephen denied that he ever told anybody about his own family in Merced and that this never happened, but a few teenagers who were there do remember this incident. In July 1979, they moved 50 miles to an isolated cabin um, in the Mountain View Ranch in the town of Manchester. The owner of the ranch grew cannabis and he needed someone to guard against people trespassing and stealing. So Parnell got a job 50 miles away in Ukiah working as a desk clerk in the Palace Hotel. So as Dennis got older, Parnell's sexual interest in him waned. In the year 1980, Parnell ended his sex acts with his you know, son, but increased his efforts to find a new younger partner and it had began to appear to rid himself of Dennis. So on February 14th, 1980, which is the day that Timmy went missing, Stephen was horrified when Parnell picked him up from school with five-year-old Timmy White. When they got back to the cabin, Stephen tried to take care of Timmy and when Timmy asked if he could go home, Stephen promised to take him. Stephen was terrified that Parnell would try to sexually assault Timmy when Stephen was at school. So he began returning home from school in the middle of the day, every day, to make sure that Timmy was okay. So as with um, Stephen years before, Parnell decided that one of the easiest ways to alter his appearance was to dye his distinctive hair from platinum platinum blonde to dark brown. Stephen knew that sooner or later Parnell would sexually assault Stephen, and so he began to carry Timmy. A, sorry, he would he would began to he would um, sexually assault Timmy. So he began to carry a Bowie knife strapped to the inside of his boot. So so far he knew that it hadn't happened. So Stephen decided to make plans to return Timmy to Yakaya. His plan, however, had been thwarted several times due to Parnell's failure to go to work and other evenings when the persistent rain, when he and Timmy tried to escape, they got soaked to the skin, Timmy would cry and they would have to turn around. Stephen had no way of knowing that Parnell had actually planned to kill him and then, with the help of a teenage acquaintance of Stephen's, to bury his body in a grave and his accomplice had already dug along the upper uninhabited reaches of the Garcia River. This, like, this is just, uh, I I don't know what else is yeah. going to happen here. So Parnell's plan was sort of to move with Timmy um, to a cabin in Arkansas, but during the last two weeks of February 1980, that rain that I was talking about made it impossible to access the upper reaches of the Garcia River, which therefore delayed his plan. So... On the 1st of March 1980, when night fell, Stephen and Timmy were to make their first attempt at escape. Parnell left for his night shift at the Palace Hotel. Stephen was determined that this time that the same fate would not befall Timmy. They put on their coats. Stephen put his bowie knife in his right boot and then he knelt by his trembling terrier dog, Queenie, his constant companion throughout his seven-year ordeal, and assured her that he would come back for her. Stephen tried to carry Timmy in the pouring rain, and was terrified at how angry Parnell would be if he should suddenly return home to find both of his sons out on the road trying to escape. 
They eventually managed to hitchhike a ride from a Mexican man with very little English. He brought them straight into Ukiah. When they arrived in Ukiah, Timmy was confused about where he lived and so they looked up the address of the Ukiah police station at a phone booth. They had to walk past the Palace Hotel where Purnell worked. Stephen recalls his heart jumping in his throat when he considered the thought that Purnell might see them. When they did arrive at the police station, Stephen encouraged Timmy to go into the station and give his name to the first policeman he saw. Timmy got to the police station, looked in the door, got frightened and ran back to Stephen. So that is when we know that the officer approached them, asked them their names. Um, You know, he hadn't anticipated that um, this would be Stephen and Timmy. But Stephen actually, firstly, initially, did not even plan on going back with Timmy. He actually planned on going back home to Ken. However, when the policeman asked him his name, he made a split-second decision and decided to tell the truth. So that was the whole story of sort of... That, that is the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. It's very, very sad. After about a month getting reacquainted with his family, Stephen enrolled in the freshman class at the East Campus of Merced High School. But there was a lot of problems. He was very badly bullied. Um, He was accused of being gay due to the sexual abuse he suffered at the hands of Parnell. And this is I know why are people like people are evil too. This is this is so evil to even. People were also sort of asking the same question: Why had he never tried to run away from Parnell? You know, he had plenty of opportunities where he had, you know, he was left alone. He had run-ins with the police. He went to school. You know, Stephen did comment multiple times about how he believed that that his situation was life or death. And he did everything he could in order to persevere his life. I mean, he was seven years old. When it happened, he was completely manipulated into believing. And at that point as well, when he got to the age where he knew what Parnell had done was wrong... He was accustomed to this new life. He didn't know how to tell anyone or or how how to to go back. And also, like, no one ever can even begin to think how it would feel to be in that situation unless you've lived through it. Yes, and no one has been through, you know, no one went through what he went through, what happened to him. So no one knows what he felt. And he did say that he genuinely feared for his life. Um, uh, Stephen... um, did have problems then making male friends. You know, he um, fr- voice didn't want to be friends with them in school because of what he went oh through. He did have a lot of girlfriends, however, but he's, you know, he, he did say that he was constantly trying to prove his sexual identity, that he didn't identify as gay. Um, and it's just so sad like that he had to he go had through to all it? that. Yeah. 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 In the spring of 1980, Stephen, with his family's approval, opted to um, allow the Hollywood television production company on behalf of ABC TV to, um, you know, basically uh, do a show on his story of what happened to him. Um, He was offered $25,000, but because of their problems with the fictionalization of the script, the story was never produced. So he did actually get that money, but um, they never produced the show. So, unfortunately, the seven years that Stephen was kidnapped, that the time that had passed, and also the 200 miles that separated um, the Merced Police Department from Mendocino County, actually really hindered 
on the case that they had prepared against Parnell. So the trial um, is very, very frustrating. So um, the, the, there was a lot of sort of politics going on here. The Mendocino County uh, District Attorney Investigator Richard Dick Finn, he did not follow up on the Merced officers' discoveries that Parnell had committed hundreds of sexual acts on Stephen as well as a number of sexual assaults on Stephen's young male friends during his four-year residence in Mendocino County. So, you know, in their investigative trip to Mendocino County, officers continued to uncover more boys who had been victims of sexual assaults by Purnell. They had all been between the ages of 9 and 14 years old at the time they were assaulted. They had filled out detailed reports of each incident and personally handed them to Dick Finn, um, but no one really knew for certain what happened to all of this information. Who's um, Dick Finn? He is the um, district attorney investigator of Mendocino County. So he pretty much doesn't really do anything with this information. So he sounds like a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so the in the Cal, in the state of California the statute of limitations for sexual assault on a child is 3 years. So they basically um they they can only really charge um Parnell with the assaults on Stephen from the period of 1977 to 1980 because that would have been the 3 years that they can only really sort of prosecute for. Um just, it, it doesn't, doesn't make even make sense. sense. I don't know. It makes me angry. Um, they would have to be filed in Mendocino County. Um, it was documented 87 sexual assaults on Stephen in that time. Um, but on his own authority, Dick Finn did not pursue a thorough investigation of Purnell's assaults on Stephen and the other boys as he decided it wasn't worth putting Stephen through. Oh, Dick, Dick, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I am... Getting angry. Uh, it's very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating. So all in all, to summarise, Kenneth Parnell was charged with the maximum sentence of seven years for the kidnapping of Timmy White. And in a separate trial, he was charged with 24 months for Stephen's kidnapping. Under Californian law, each sentence for each separate conviction had to be merged. So it also prohibited the judge from sentencing Parnell to more than 24 months for kidnapping Stephen since he had already received the maximum sentence for his conviction on the second degree charge of kidnapping Timmy White. So he kidnapped. Yes. A seven-year-old boy. Yes. Held him hostage for, for seven years. Seven years. Mm -hmm. Sexually assaulted him in the worst possible ways. Yeah. Sexually assaulted numerous boys and got 24 months in jail. Well, uh, that was for Stephen, but yes. So, so well, take, so he kidnapped a seven-year-old child, mm -hmm. kept him for seven years, yeah. sexually assaulted him, yeah, and it got 24 months. It's an insult. It's such an insult. It's very sad. And this man should never have been ever allowed to walk the streets again. I hope he got beat up in prison. Um, I don't know that. When the trials were over in 1982, Stephen attempted to get on with his life, but he obviously had a lot of problems. You know, he, well, first of all, he had a lot of absences from school. He, um, because he had absences from school when he lived with Parnell, but he also appeared on Good Morning America, the Today Show, other national and local television shows. He had to testify at both trials, which he missed a lot of school for. Yeah. Um, 
His parents never, ever once talked to him about the sexual assaults. None of his siblings ever discussed the sexual assaults. And Stephen got visibly embarrassed if it was ever brought up. They also would not allow him to get therapy. They felt like it wasn't a good option. They did not believe in it. And therefore, they didn't want Stephen to get therapy. In saying all that, like he did dabble in marijuana and alcohol. And he did get the money from the TV show and the $15,000 reward money for returning Timmy. So, you know, however, when he, he finished his senior year at high school, he kind of burned through all the money. He bought cars and stuff. Um, he loved driving quite recklessly. And um, he ends can up I just crashing. ask, remember the dog? What happened? Did he ever get the yes, dog? Yes, he got the dog. He, he took Queenie the, home. Queenie came back and lived with him. Yes, oh. he was not going to leave Queenie there. Um, so, yeah, he loved cars and he drove quite recklessly. He crashed a couple of cars and he then decided to go off alcohol. In June 1985, he married Jodie Edmondson, um, which was a woman that he met the summer before in California. In December that year, she gave birth to their first child, a daughter, Ashley. So, you know, he really sort of turned his life around, like yep. for everything that he went through. He was such a good person. He um, they birthed a second child, which was a son they named Stephen Gregory Steiner II, oh and gosh. they called him Stevie. Um, and he worked... Uh, or sorry, he dreamed of becoming a deputy, a deputy sheriff. Um, in 1989, there was a miniseries, which was called I Know My First Name is Stephen, was uh, produced. And Stephen said he felt that there was a sense of relief because people knew what happened to him. Um, you know, he sort of felt like for the first time... His story was told and people could understand. Told, yes. Um, Edward Murphy, Murph, uh, the guy oh, yes. that... Um, just to let you know this, because this is just in context to what Parnell actually, uh, the time he did, guess how long Murph got sentenced for? Well, so Parnell got 24 months for the kidnapping and the rape and the... Well, the, he wasn't him. charged for the rape or any of the sexual assaults. He wasn't charged for any of that because they didn't <laughs> want to put Stephen through it. So Murph was charged uh, five years imprisoned what? and paroled after two. Yeah. How, is so that, how does that make sense? It doesn't. It's very hard to... And also, what about Barbara? Yes, Barbara. <sighs> With regards Barbara and everything, the author of the book that I told you about did actually end up tracking her down in 1984. She was living in a remote, you know, mountaintop area in Mendocino County. She was living there with her common-law husband, John Allen, and her youngest son, Lloyd, who was now 16 years old. The author, um, he actually, you know spoke to Lloyd, um, who was a little, um, you know, he was kind, soft-spoken young man, and he told the, author, uh, told the author with moving honesty about Parnell sexually assaulting him as a nine-year-old. Oh, my God. Parnell ruined so many, many lives. lives. The, the author also interviewed Barbara. He described her as wrinkled well beyond her 40-odd years and strands of black hair hanging over an almost toothless smile she was illiterate and lacking most social graces and she said kenneth was always looking at boys but everybody looks at kids i guess um do they barbara <sighs> no they like don't, no they don't barbara not like that barbara and we, <laughs> this actually boils my blood the summer after Stephen had returned home from running away from pernell and bringing timmy home Kay, uh steven's mother opened her front door and was shocked to discover on her porch Barbara Matthias with her son Lloyd and a television news crew. Barbara what? had been promised several hundred dollars by the TV station for her help in arranging an exclusive interview with Stephen and his family and she just 
show up. Okay, so Barbara is just another level here. Also, the television like crew, what? Like, why? How, why did they think this was like a, an okay thing to do? I don't. I'm not sure if at that point it was known to everybody what Barbara had done. But Kay uh, lost no time slamming the door in her face. She was fuming. Quote, I was just boiling. I can't put my feelings into words. I just feel that people like her should be put away for and good. you're right, Kay. You are so right, Kay. The Mendocino County failed to investigate or prosecute Barbara for her molestation of Stephen. Oh, like this. This is... I can't take any more of this yeah, story. Yeah, it's, it's so sad. Um, You know, Stephen was such a... Such a good person. He'd done so much, even after everything he'd been through. Um, and on Saturday, September the 16th, 1989, Stephen ended a shift at Pizza Hut where he worked. And shortly before 5pm, he hopped on his motorcycle for the 15 minute ride to his home when a worker driving a friend's car with which he was not familiar with pulled in front of Stephen and stalled. Stephen kept going, crashed into the driver's door was thrown almost 45 feet from his motorcycle. No, can you? Was rushed to Merced County Medical Center, where at 5.35 p.m. he was pronounced dead of massive head injuries. The helmet that he normally wore had been stolen just three days earlier. No, this is... this. What? So sad. This can't... just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I thought he had a happy ending. I know, I know. But... He was a hero, like he saved Timmy White from years of torture and abuse and a lifetime of haunting memories. He, you know, he gave him a life with his family. Um, P- Pernell. Oh. Yeah, did what? Per- so, Pernell, so Pernell got out, obviously. Per- after Pernell served his time, he was released on April 5th, 1985, an early release due to his excellent behaviour oh, while no. in prison. And on April 5th, 1987, his supervised parole ended and he became a free man to drop in and out of sight, travel wherever he wanted to and associate with anyone he chose to. When he was in his late 70s, um, in 2003, he offered one of his caregivers $500 cash if she brought him, quote, a little African-American boy, unquote, to his home. Initially, she thinks he's joking. What is he talking about? Then realizes he's not. Yeah. Also, like you're joking. What? Like, like no. What? How? Like, what, how's that? Like, how's that a joke? So she's like, right. This is really strange. She involves the authorities, um, who operate, you know, a sting operation. Um, they find multiple sex toys in his home. So in two thousand and four. Under California's third strike rule, he was then finally sentenced to 25 years to life after he attempted to abduct another child. So after he had propositioned the caregiver with $500. Right, well, great. He was sent to 25 years, but it's it's too little too late. It's so late after everything that he had done. Um, so he was, you know, found guilty of soliciting a person to kidnap someone um, and... At that point, he actually had five strikes, so it wasn't his third strike. The jury, thankfully, only took 90 minutes to find him guilty. And on the 21st of January 2008, he died of natural causes. What a monster. He was a monster. Like, this whole story is just so, so difficult to listen to. And everything that he put Stephen through and all the other children that he, you know, hurt. It's just, it's a hard listen. But Stephen... 
is the hero in this story. Stephen is absolutely the hero in the story. Um, you know, he had such a short life, but in that he did so much. You know, he helped Timmy like li- live a whole life with his family and should always be remembered for his bravery. Okay, so we know that this was quite a long episode um, and we know it was also a hard listen. Thanks for listening, guys, and we will talk to you again next week on What's a Crime. Thank you.